Welcome to the JMD podcast, a fortnightly podcast from the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease that gives authors a forum to discuss their work, share their knowledge and expand on some of the stories behind the science. This week we're looking at new diagnostic tests in CDG, but there's a vast array of content to listen to on all manner of metabolic disorders, so be sure to check them out, but not before you listen to this week's episode. Hello there. It's a testament to the powers of social media that this week's episode has come together, but it's a wonderful timing as we're recording just ahead of World CDG Awareness Day on the 16th of May. For this episode, I'm joined by some of the authors of the recent paper, N-Glycome Analysis Detects Disglycosylation Missed by Conventional Methods in SLC39A8 Deficiency. And it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Julian Park, Dr. Robert Miller, and Professor Thorsten Marquardt. Good evening to the three of you. Good evening. Good evening, James. Hi. Now, I think of congenital disorders like glycosylation as an increasingly common rare disease, but obviously the reality is they've always been there, but we've perhaps struggled to identify them. Why is diagnosing CDG so difficult? Well, the main point, I think, is that you need to think about it first. So in order to diagnose a CDG, you have to have this, you know, clinical picture in mind that might prompt you to diagnose a CDG. But then, of course, there are also new presentations, and you basically um, need to think of the possibility that this uncommon disorder, this uncommon presentation might, in fact, be a CDG, because I think most people have never seen a CDG in real life, because it's not a common disorder, as you say. So um, you need to think about it first. Yeah, it started like 30, 40 years ago when the first CDG patients were discovered, but by now, we have more than 100 different disorders with all kinds of completely different phenotypes. So it's very difficult to say uh, uh, which uh, child you should really screen. You have to have a very broad screen in children where the diagnosis is not completely clear so that you, uh, that you find them at all. And I mean, certainly locally, we've we've found that we've had an increasing number of children just turn up through the increasing use of sort of deep sequencing approaches. Right. This kind of highlights that the isoelectric focusing approach that some people might have used to try to rule in or rule out a CDG is perhaps limited in its functionality. Well, it is. Uh, not all the uh, different forms of CDG are... Uh, recognized by this simple uh, transferrin CDG test, that's for sure. That's why more sophisticated biochemical methods are needed. And on the other hand, of course, we all profit from the advancement of uh, whole uh, exome or whole genome sequencing. We don't need to know anything about uh, CDG, but you, you may just pick them up. Nevertheless, within your paper, you discussed two patients with SLT39A8 CDG, which you refer to as a severe subtype. I've spoken with Ava Moreva um, previously about PGM1 disease. There's also been an episode about CDG associated with cutis laxa. What's the difference about this type of CDG? Well, SLC39A8 CDG is really um, an unlikely CDG, and also you might call it a secondary CDG, actually, because the main defect lies in a trace element transporter. So this molecule, SLC39A8, is a manganese transporter. It's, it's got an incredibly important role for manganese transport in the human body, and defects in this channel result in manganese deficiency. Um, we can measure this in the blood and secondary to that, because manganese is an important cofactor for so many other enzymes and most, most importantly in our case, 
galactosyl transferases, you see disc glycosylation. So that's an, maybe like a secondary a manifestation of the disease that we see glycosylation changes. And the phenotype, um, as you said, is really severe. So the patients have debilitating seizures that are really hard to control um, with conventional therapy. Um, they have cranial synostosis and are really, really suffering from this disease. You mentioned it's a severe phenotype. I mean, one of the, the great Orton Street consultants recently observed to me was that because we only look for these kind of conditions in the severely unwell children, it means we tend to have a, a skewing of our phenotypes towards the more severe. I mean, is, have you come across any more mild forms or is the nature of a manganese transporter deficiency always going to be severe? Well, it is a good question. Most of the patients... Uh, we have encountered uh, have a pretty severe phenotype, but that may be just due to the fact that we are missing the milder ones. And uh, certainly for another CDG condition, uh, we worked a lot on, uh, it's called GDP Foucault's transporter deficiency or uh, CDG2C. All the patients I had seen over decades, basically, were very similar in their phenotype. Yeah. All had a severe psychomotor handicap, all had uh, were unable uh, to speak. And recently we encountered a much, much milder patient. And even having worked on this field for quite a few years, I would have not realized that this patient uh, has the same condition. So with, with, with both methods, I mean, with looking, with not having the right tools to find the patients, but also relying on the clinical phenotype, we might miss, and I'm pretty sure we, we will miss, um, the more mildly affected patients, which of course is a shame because we are, after all, in many cases, are talking about treatable disorders here. I'm glad you mentioned um, sort of techniques for diagnosis there, because in your paper, you've explained how you used a novel technique to help confirm the diagnosis or to make the diagnosis. Are you able to explain how that works? Sure, I'm happy to explain it. The technique that we used in this paper um, is not necessarily novel in the sense that it's been around for some time, but it's not always applied uniformly to CDGs. And so that's using MALDI TOF mass spectrometry. So what we do is we take the plasma of the patient samples and we purify the glycans from the blood, uh, remove them with an enzyme, and then analyze them with the mass spectrometer. And what's interesting about this is opposed to looking to just a single set of glycans on a protein like transferrin, we look at all of the glycans that are present in the blood. That makes up about at least 60 different unique glycans. So a defect on a protein that is not transferrin that could be potentially missed by isoelectric focusing could be found by mass spectrometry. And does that mean this is applicable just to end glycosylation disorders or would all glycosylation disorders be applicable in this way? That's a great question. In this case, we've only looked at N-glycosylation. Um, however, there's a lot of disorders where people have looked for N-glycosylation deficiencies uh, in CDGs and not found them using the same technique. And so disorders of O-glycosylation might be missed by just using N-glycosylation, but each one is essentially a tool to allow a, a snapshot into one part of the pathway. Here we were using that tool to find N-glycosylation changes. And how do you see this technique being adopted within kind of the workflow going forward? Is it something that you'd only use in, in certain cases or would you be using it consistently when a CDG is suspected? 
Well, in the ideal world, we would use it on every patient because I think there's so much potential in this technique. You can see so many more things than just by looking at transferrin and transferrin glycosylation. I think it's especially valuable in unclear cases. So you've mentioned, you know, next generation sequencing, and you frequently come across patients who got some kind of diagnosis. They said, well, there's some kind of unknown variant in a glycosylation-related gene, and you don't know. Is it uh, a benign variant? Um, you use the prediction tools, but in the end, you sometimes end up not knowing what it is. And if you have this very, very precise and very um, refined tool, then you can really make a better conclusion about that because you can really see also very subtle glycosylation changes. And that so that's basically what we describe in our paper. One of the individuals that we've seen had a variant where we didn't know if it affected the function of SLC39A8 at all. And so by, by using this technique, we were able to diagnose this um, CDG in this patient. Well, I suppose you've answered what I wanted to ask next, which was, do you see this as more a way of reviewing genetic findings or an earlier investigation? It sounds like it's more useful in terms of qualifying an uncertain finding rather than a, a first line or second line investigation. Is that fair to say? Well, that's probably going to be the future, right? In former times or up to now, we have basically used biochemical methods in order to screen for all kinds of inherited metabolic disorders, lysosomal disorders, congenital disorders of glycosylation, whatever. But uh, of course, we missed quite a few patients. And with this advan advancement, of uh, molecular techniques, basically in our center um, at the beginning, in the, when the patients come first to the hospital, they already get a whole exome sequencing or a, a triome sequencing, yeah? And uh, we find many, many diseases in uh, so far undiagnosed uh, children. And then we have the problem, the other problem around, we need a functional proof that uh, um, you, the gene you have found is really um, causing harm. And in terms of, uh, in the field of uh, glycosylation, of course, it's very, um, it's very important to have this sensitive, very sophisticated new tools where you can prove then uh, that, that the gene you suspect might cause the disease is really the right candidate. Yeah, conversation we were having just this week with how we confirmed a, a genetic finding that was not something that we anyone had expected when it was returned from the lab. Obviously, the importance of making these diagnoses is about treatment, and this is one of a sort of small number of, you know, but very welcome group of treatable inherited metabolic diseases. I wonder if you could expand on how treatment is undertaken in this condition. Well, for treating this disorder, we come back to glycosylation, basically, because the initial finding we saw also using mass spectrometry was hypogalactosylation. So the glycans we looked at had a severely reduced galactose content, and that's something we've also seen in the end glycon profiling. So when the initial patient was diagnosed, we started her on galactose because that was something that we could see at that point at that time and she responded really well to that treatment so the transfer in glycosylation normalized um, over the course of around about two to three weeks at that time but once we had confirmed that manganese was at the source of the problem really um, manganese sulfate substitution is actually the better treatment for this condition because like we said in the beginning um, uh, deficiency in manganese is the actual cause and glycosylation changes are only a secondary effect in this disorder. And you, I mean, you mentioned um, correction of 
sort of biochemical abnormality was that accompanied by a clinical improvement yes it was so uh, the patient initially had really severe um, infantile spasms that did not respond to any treatment basically and we saw a really remarkable reduction in, in seizure frequency and also severity and also some really remarkable eeg improvement under manganese substitution so that was really um yeah a very very fascinating finding but also for the therapy field, you know, we can learn a lot from N-glycone profiling because um, I think Robbie can tell a bit more about that. We saw that although transferrin was really normal in this patient under substitution, there were still some sub, uh, subclinical or sub, sub-biochemical changes that you could not see using the traditional techniques. And so the, the N-glycone profiling really allowed us to, to titrate the treatment better. But I think one of the things that Julian's mentioning is that um, each individual's glycome is, is unique in certain ways, but relatively stable. So if you started a person on treatment, you could track within that individual how their glycome was changing, um, which I think is a strength uh, of doing sequential analyses. Yeah. And, and manganese is toxic, right? So uh, if you take, if your, your manganese intake is uh, too high, you may have some other problems. And after all, our initial patient is taking about 100 times the amount of uh, manganese uh, that I would uh, take in during a day. So it's a really, really high dose. And of course, what you want to do is you just want to correct the biochemical abnormalities, but you don't, you don't want to have toxic effects. And for this, these new sensitive diagnostic tools that are much better than the previous one because we already thought we have the optimal dose uh, for the child because in our glycosylation assays, it just looked normalized. Yeah, Whereas uh, Robbie could show that this was not the case. And with further increasing the dose, we could then reach complete normalization of glycosylation and clinical improvement. And actually clinical improvement was really dramatic. Julianne said in the beginning, this child was suffering. Every time she was awake, you could hardly bear it. Yeah, because you saw that she was suffering. She had no head control. She could not swallow. She was supposed to be blind. She could not hear. She had these really severe uh, spasms. And now when you look at her, she's eating by herself. She has no hearing aids anymore. She looks at you. She, she uh, smiles and laughs at you. It's just a tremendous difference in her life. And, uh, you know, it, of course, she's one of the pioneers. She's the first patient who was ever diagnosed. We have no good idea whether we are now in the optimal uh, range, really. But, you know, these, these, these new tools really make things better for her and uh, for us in treating her. I think it's obviously immensely satisfying to hear about real kind of clinical endpoints and such a, a, an incredible change in the, in the little girl. Uh, something else that had, had come up when we've obviously discussed this prior to the episode was some of the, perhaps the wider implications around SLC39A8. And I know that certainly recently I spoke with Professor Kim Hemsley and her team about the implications of heterozygosity and lysosomal storage diseases when it came to neurodegenerative disease. Um, and there are some wider sort of implications around this disorder of a, of a, in a similar vein, aren't there? Yeah, I think uh, this is a great example of a gene which functions likely on a spectrum. Um, we see here 
these individuals are sort of in the middle of the spectrum, but on the severe end, um, where the previous cases had a really severe mutation, no manganese, and very abnormal transfer and glycosylation. This individual perhaps has a slightly more functioning variant, but still a profound phenotype, normal transferrin, but abnormal glycosylation as measured by glycomics. We also, in this study, looked at some of their parents who were carriers of the heterozygous mutation, and it seemed as though some of the glycosylation changes are also present there. To take it to the other end of the genetics sort of arena or spectrum, um, this SLC39A8 has a common missense mutation that's actually one of the most pleiotropic in the genome that's been associated with many different conditions, things like scoliosis, uh, Crohn's disease, schizophrenia. And so it seems as though uh, dysfunction uh, if this gene in any level seems to put you at some risk for, for disorders. And is that accompanied by a, a, a biochemical kind of picture as well, or is it more subtle than that? Uh, it's, it is subtle, but we're able to detect it in some examples. If you look at the blood of, of the carriers, the normal, otherwise normal healthy humans who carry the common variant, uh, with this method, we're also able to detect changes if you look at a large number of individuals. So on the order of dozens of individuals, you can detect a disc glycosylation in, in the, the carriers. And would it mean there's a role for the use of manganese in these patients with inflammatory bowel disease or schizophrenia? That's a great question. That's what we are actually working on for a majority, us and others, to, to determine if that would be of benefit to this, to this variant that's in about 10% of the population. Well, I think it's, it's, it's intriguing to think about this question. When we were always supposing that heterozygous carriers are completely healthy, yeah, but with more sophisticated techniques and with more insights into uh, different diseases, we're beginning to learn that that might not be the case. Yeah, you. You mentioned uh, lysosomal disorders earlier, yeah, where, for instance, in NPC uh, disease, we have heterozygous parents that have oxysterols, biomarkers for this disease, that are as high as some of the patients. And here uh, we can see that uh, um, heterozygous uh, parents of uh, CDG children have subtle glycosylation abnormalities uh, um, as well. So you wonder, you know, how, how <laughs> whether any one of us is healthy or whether we are really, <laughs> uh, you know, all of us, we all have you know, like um, thousands of genes probably with, with uh, heterozygous mutations and uh, uh, maybe uh, more functional consequences than we previously thought. Oh, what a way to leave us with all of us wondering if we're actually healthy or not. <laughs> yeah, that's something to think about, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe not too hard. Well, I, uh, as I say, thank you, thank you all again. I'm exceptionally grateful for you joining me this evening and stepping into the breach at such short notice. Um, and it's it's been fantastic chatting with you, even if it's a little bit scary now. Um, <laughs> if you if you'd like to read more about this paper, then please visit the journal site and you'll find the paper available to read open access. And if you'd like to hear more about CDG, including the inimitable Ava Mareva discussing PGM1 CDG, then check out our other podcasts. Julian, Robert and Thorsten, thank you again for your time. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you. It's very fun. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.